This is the Hope for the Hood podcast, brought to you by Prodigal Sons Incorporated. Welcome back. Here we are with Danny and Megan today. Um, Megan is an awesome friend of ours. Uh, we've known her for what? How, how long? I, at least five years. Yeah, it's been good. We, we initially met through church. Um, but uh, yeah, Megan and me and Danny are excited to talk today mm-hmm. together. I'm excited mm-hmm. to be here. Thanks yeah. for having me. Be a good time. Yeah. So uh, why do we have Megan on? So Megan um, not only is a, a just a sister in Christ, uh, but also it has a really cool job. She literally saves people's lives every day, literally. So um, that is her official job title, which is great. Yeah, officially, I'm uh, an acute care surgeon um, and director of the surgical ICU at the Los Angeles County and University of Southern California Medical Center in Los Angeles. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things that, that, you know, we're going to talk about today is really like getting into just your perspective on on those you get to serve. Um, Some of them are gang affiliated, which we'll get into that. Um, And so, yeah, I think as as you listen um, to this podcast, you being the audience. <laughs> um, you know, we, we hope that this will be helpful for you, especially just in terms of seeing um, some of the realities through Megan's lens, uh, through through her perspective. So um, Megan, before we get into like your day to day and all the all the stories, um, yeah, I just want to give people a chance to get to know you a bit. So what brought you to LA initially? And um, yeah, how long have you been here? Yeah. So I've actually lived in Los Angeles a couple times. And um, every time I've come back, it's it's related to the work that I do. Um, I lived here um, briefly as a student, um, which was the first time that um, I had the opportunity to work at the county hospital um, and really just got a chance to see um, what an incredi- incredible place it is to work um, as a physician, as a surgeon, um, as someone uh, who does what we do. Um, and then I came back um, a few years later um, as part of my training um, when I was uh, studying critical care. Um, and at that point met my now husband. <laughs> and, He's a uh, great dude. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we then have, We should have had him on for his accent. Yes. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> it, like, pe- people love the British accent. Yeah. It's much nicer to listen to him than me. That's for sure. <laughs> 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 um, so, but, you know, then actually um, lived a number of other places. Um, I served in the military for a few years and um, ultimately came back um, because I was offered the opportunity to um, do the job I do at the county hospital and and uh, really just couldn't turn that down. That's awesome. Mm. What so so was being in the medical field something you were always kind of geared towards or yeah, how yeah. did you I mean, and particularly I'm curious to hear like how you got into trauma. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's not a just yeah. a standard yeah. thing. Yeah, I wouldn't say there's a lot of I guess 5-year-olds uh wandering around <laughs> thinking that's what they they want to do when they grow up. So, you know, my um my mother was a ICU nurse and so I've always sort of been interested in healthcare um because of her and um have sort of um uh been pulled in a number of different directions throughout my life, but I would say that um, the turning point was when she got me a summer job working at the Elvis Presley Memorial Trauma Center in Memphis, Tennessee. And that was really the first time I got to see what a trauma surgeon was and um, what the team did um, when someone comes in who's bleeding or needs emergency surgery and um, sort of how that resuscitation effort went and um, the dramatic nature of of the results you can see when uh, when 
the team's ready to go and mm. and uh, a life gets saved. So I think that really um, was the turning point for me. So, mm. yeah. Man, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd already, like we, we hung out and talked a few weeks ago. And I remember that day I was like, Megan, I have so many questions for you. I just want to, and I'm kind of in that mode right now. Where I'm like, throw the Dan- script Dan- out. Dan- <laughs> Danny, I'm literally, like, right, I got to stick Literally the like deep dived into like, hey, what happens when somebody comes in with like <laughs> yeah. a stab wound? Like if you get stabbed here. Yeah. I was like st- breaking down like where all the specific parts that are <laughs> very fatal and, sh- and shots and stabbing wounds. Like I don't know. It's just like, yeah. but I'm, I, I got to stick to a script today. So yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Like, I, I think my grandfather used to love watching the Surgery Channel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I was just like, "Oh, I can't handle that." Yeah. So, <laughs> I, I do have one. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say. Well, I think the popularity comes in waves, and you know, as soon as you get a successful uh, television show or something, uh, then people get more interested. And sometimes I remember during training when I would tell people what I would do, and they would say, "Oh, is that like Grey's Anatomy?" <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's exactly like Grey's yeah. Anatomy. Are people allowed to like sit in and watch? surgeries? Is that a real thing? Um, so yes, um, but uh, it's changed quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, um, with um, sort of the era of, of HIPAA, which is, you know, Health uh-huh. Information Privacy Act, um, and then um, again with COVID. So um, certainly um, training medical professionals are able to sit in and watch um, surgery students. Um, people are um, sort of headed in that direction. Um, but the general public can't really sort of buy tickets. Kramer. And, yeah, this podcast is sponsored by Junior Mints. Yeah. So, man, okay. that's yeah. funny. Okay, so so just bring us into the the operating room. Um, like illustrate for us what is your typical day to day, week to week? Um, what are you seeing? What are you dealing with? Yeah, sure. So I actually I feel like I get asked a lot about like what is my typical day, and I and I think that I um, <laughs> one of the things I love about my job is that there's variety, mm. um, and I do a lot of different things, um, and it's a little bit hard to explain day to day what I'm doing, but I think the easiest way to explain it is is from the perspective of a patient, um, and that is um, uh, who are all these people that that take care of you if you experience a traumatic event, so you're in a car accident or you're the victim of um, a violent attack, a knife stab wound or a gunshot wound. And um, the ambulance will pick you up and they are already radioing in um, to the county hospital and letting us know what they're bringing to us um, and that the patient is bleeding or has some sort of instability, um, whether that it's their ability to breathe or um, whether it's um, their blood pressure. And uh, as soon as they let the hospital know, then they assemble the team. So they're going to call us if somebody's bleeding or if they seem like they might need emergency surgery. And then we're all going to be there in the emergency room waiting when the ambulance arrives. And uh, so there's just a few minutes, actually, in the emergency room while we assess and um, try to do the initial stabilization and figure out which are the most important and most life-threatening injuries. Mm. And then we're up in the operating room within minutes um, wow. fixing whatever it is um, is threatening the patient's life. Um, and after we do that, um, we roll over to the surgical ICU, um, which is um, probably a huge component of my job. And uh, I, I think of 
sort of that period in the emergency room and the operating room as the short game, and mm. uh, it's intense, and I enjoy it a lot. But the ICU is really sort of the long game, and patients will be there anywhere from days to weeks and sometimes months. Mm. Um, and uh, that's where we're really um, treating the additional injuries um, and also um, monitoring for complications um, and uh, recovery from that initial surgery. And uh, that's when we get to know um, both the patients and their families yeah. and when you really um, start to, um, I guess, identify as, as their, their doctor. And mm. uh, so that's um, also a really, um, I guess, special part of my job. So, mm. um, I mean, you kind of touched on some of the uh, patients in a sense of who you're dealing with, with what type of injury specifically, but I guess kind of more focusing on the actual patients, like who are your typical patients? Like who is the, the normal individual that you're encountering yeah. uh, with this? Sure. So um, I work at the county hospital. And um, so I would say that the majority or our typical patient is someone who doesn't have medical insurance. Um, many of them are new to this country hmm. or are um, living under um, impoverished um, circumstances. Some of them are experiencing homelessness. Hmm. Um, many do not speak English. Um, some of them are um, affiliated with gangs or living um, under circumstances that um, are just um, unimaginable to, to some of us. So. Hmm. Well, how, how uh, I guess specifically, if I'm going to, if I can kind of just sort of veer back into like a more prodigal specific part of, um, of this conversation, uh, you mentioned like the gang members and stuff, like how, what's like the age approximation usually if you get like a gang member are they like young kids or are they older got like what or is it just any age kind of deal yeah I would say the majority of our patients are young and um, I think um, under 30 is most common though of course we do see a range um, and I think that um, you know it, it, my perception very much is that they're they're adolescents mm. so. mm -hmm. that's crazy yeah so just for our listeners um, who may not be familiar, where Megan works um, at the LA, LAC uh, USC Medical Center, um, it's located pretty much on the west northwest section of Boyle Heights, or basically the the it's like the in between between Boyle Heights and downtown kind of, um, and Boyle Heights and East LA are two communities that are side by side. Uh, side by side each other um, and a lot of people kind of refer to that area as the east side or east LA in general but Boyle Heights is a very specific community as is east LA and over there there is a lot a lot a lot of gang activity uh, it's one of those areas of LA where um, usually if you drive a block over or cross a major intersection or go a couple blocks any any certain direction, you're going to hit various different gang territories. Um, and this is the context, and this is a lot of the patients, right, Megan, that you're getting from specifically more Boyle Heights or Lincoln Heights or maybe East LA. Um, and uh, it is probably, I think, a very constant flow of, like how often are you getting like 
like gang members, like gu- these gunshot victims potentially um, in, yeah. in your... I think I think we're definitely the primary medical center that treats um, those patients um, mm-hmm. because of both our location and um, our funding by the county. So mm-hmm. um, I, it's, it's an every night kind of thing in terms mm-hmm. of treating uh, um, victims of violence and mm-hmm. uh, whether or not that's, that's gang related or not. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so because of this, because of where you're located, what you're doing, and how there's this flow, you probably have more interactions with gang members on a daily basis than any normal listener that we have, or maybe sometimes even me and Brian, you know? Um, and you meet them when they're in a very vulnerable state, when they are probably facing death, um, or they've just been uh, hit with a very, obviously, traumatic experience, maybe if it's just even a a uh, leg wound or a hand wound or something like that maybe but there's still like a value of shock that they're going through um i'm just curious if you can contrast your experience with like a common perspective on gang members like kind of just shedding light on maybe how would you say this brian like a typical view of it of a yeah. gang member and I mean, then like what you're seeing what are the normal views right it's like gang members are i don't know they're just choosing all this or blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. there's, there's so many mm-hmm. views. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, just what, yeah, I think there's, that? um, it, or at least for what I see in, in Hollywood or out in the world is sort of this facade or this machoism, mm-hmm. um, associated with, uh, um, with gang membership. And I think, but, um, what you said, Danny is, is exactly right. And that is that, um, my interaction in my interaction, what I see is a, is a vulnerability. Um, I see, someone who has been taken out of um, that situation alone, no friends, no family, um, and with an injury, um, sometimes life-threatening. And I see um, someone who's scared. Um, As we already touched on, they're young. Um, I see them as um, adolescents or youths who um, have never experienced anything like this before. And um, for sure, they um, identify um, the provider, myself, as someone in a position of authority over them, um, frequently um, calling me ma'am. Um, <laughs> and uh, sort of almost a almost a fear of me mm-hmm. um, when I'm talking to them, a worry that my, my exam or the procedure that I'm going to do is, is going to cause them physical harm, um, often a fear of death, asking me, am I going to die? Am I going to die from this? Mm. Um, and so um, it really is a circumstance where um, you experience um, them in in the same way that you'd experience anyone in their humanity um, mm. suffering from, from an experience like this. So. Yeah. That's yeah. just crazy to think. Yeah, I, I like how you kind of painted the contract, the picture a little bit, right? Like there is the perspective of um and, and 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 rightly so for a lot of them there is a there is a a hard in front they have to they have to put on and so that's what is kind of known for a lot of people and like Brian was even saying like there's the well they don't care they're violent you know um this is what comes with the lifestyle like <clears throat> and so i think kind of like paint that picture a little bit like you were doing there Megan like having um, this sort of bravado, um, and this 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 identity you gotta keep up. It all kind of has. I mean, not even intentionally. It just comes down in in the blink of a blink of an eye because 
all of a sudden they've been hit with a vulnerability in a traumatic episode that's I'm sure the I'm not gonna say for everybody, but I'm sure the the image isn't the most important thing at that exact moment. Um but yeah, just very thanks for painting that picture. I think I think it's helpful just to especially when you hear about these things, specifically with the gang member usually too you read about in the news like oh there's been a shooting um and there's this sort of like oh, okay they you know if they die they die um or you know it's not really covered and i think the fact that like someone in your position sort of like humanizing them and saying like this is what they're going through in this moment and this is how they're feeling this is their emotions like you're right anybody in that situation is going to feel that same way and it's because we're all human and stuff so yeah, thanks for thanks for sharing that. So I I want to circle back. You, you were uh, there was like I basically want to double click. You sounded pretty excited about the the reality of like the long game period with your patients, right? That there's I, I mean I'd just be curious to hear without violating people's privacy, obviously. Like if there's any stories you could share, just vague, uh, just about like how have you seen maybe God at work or like just even just some of those interactions like that stand out that yeah. could be helpful. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think um, without it using any one specific case, there've been a number of cases where um, someone who's come in um, with um, essentially already dead, their heart not beating mm -hmm. and um, we've been able to resuscitate them. And there is um, virtually always a period um, of no consciousness mm -hmm. and whether that's because of a medically induced coma or whether it's because of, um, you know, poor uh, transient, poor blood flow to the brain and, and, you know, a, a um, disease-related coma. Um, we've had many experiences where, um, you know, we've been working with with the family, the the mom or the girlfriend or whoever every day, um, and uh, had this waiting period. And then, you know, after a few days or a week or two, then suddenly realized that um, that person was in there, and um, you know they've opened their eyes and and started to um, interact again or speak again, and um, and. I think that moment when um, they realize or their family realizes that that they're going to get a second chance here, mm. um, I think that um, those are the moments in the ICU where you really um, you really feel rewarded. Like, mm. uh, yeah. Mm. Mm. yeah. Um, you're you're engaging with a lot of individual patients that are, um, like we just mentioned a few minutes ago, are in a vulnerable state. There's this intense personal trauma, I should probably get closer to the mic on this, personal trauma that they're going through in this moment. Um, and in our ministry with the gang members, uh, there's definitely trauma that's there um, that we see, um, whether it's uh, the physical sort of injury or if it's just like emotional or or um, mental sort of trauma that's imposed on more abuse. Um, but it's one thing that we notice it's like a recurring part of their lives. And I know a few weeks ago, we kind of had talked about this a little bit in our discussion when we were visiting you. Um, does this reality of gang culture, this reality of the repeat trauma that's always going on, does it impact your experience in the hospital? Um, 
Yeah, absolutely. It does. It it does. And so there's an important concept in trauma care of um, recidivism, which is basically this idea that patients who come in um, who've experienced trauma are um, actually have a a pretty big likelihood of coming in again um, with another trauma down the way. And and it depends um, on exactly what their risk factors are, but that that chance could range from 5 to 20%, um, depending on if they're um, victims of intentional, um, you know, assault um, or who they are. And uh, it really does um, portray this pattern um, of, of inescapableness, like they're, they're – their circumstances are somehow unchangeable hmm. because you can come in, you can have this dramatic, you know, revival from mm. death back to life, um, this uh, seemingly uh, life-changing second chance, and yet you go back out and into the same pattern, mm. um, whether by choice or probably more than likely not by choice, by in, uh, lack of ability to to control or to change your circumstances. Mm. And then um, we see you come back um, six months or a year later mm. um, with another trauma. And actually, when that does happen, you're much more likely um, to um, die from that trauma mm. um, when, you, when you're coming back recurrent times. So. Mm. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. I, I think this is, I don't want to like kind of just brush over this part of our discussion because- I think that's one thing we don't, I think just in general, when we think about our own lives, like different traumatic episodes happen in our lives that recur and it affects us in a profound way. And I think within the church context, you know, I know we're not always the best at this as Christians, but being vulnerable with one another is a a, a thing that the church needs. And so when we do these traumatic, when we go through these traumatic episodes, whatever they may be, not specifically what you're having to deal with all the time, Megan, but we have somebody, obviously, first and foremost, our Savior, but we also have the church family we can go to to kind of unpack these episodes mm-hmm. or whatever we're going through that's traumatic in our lives and be encouraged, find hope, be pointed to a, a upward direction. And just thinking about the amount of recurring trauma, again, that happens for a lot of these guys and these gals, like they don't have that. And uh, it has to usually get buried deep down somewhere. And then, the, like you were saying, six months, a year later, the next episode happens and they got to bury that one. And um, I've, I've met so many different people. And a lot of different people have shared with me with just being in a moment where let, let's just talk about like being shot at. And, you know, some there might be like sort of like this badge of honor mentality some you can definitely see the vulnerability and just like being real and opening up about it. And I've also heard people share even more so saying how that experience really shapes like hearing something like pop or bang that's not even a gunshot, like jars them, you know, mm-hmm. for the rest of their life. It's not even, you know. Um and I think uh one of the things I think we talked about last time too, Megan, when we were visiting you, uh was I think you were weren't you comparing it to like even like war vets and like the trauma like I don't know if you can even shed light on that again a, bit, a little bit but yeah some of that for sure aspect. yeah and um, I think that that um, uh, the first part of my career I was in the military and uh, did take care of um, some uh, soldiers and sailors um, who had. Um, 
been in conflict and just the um, psychological experience that um, is manifested um, after a, a person, especially, again, going back to these being young people, um, young, vulnerable people, um, and uh, when they experience um, potentially their life ending at, at this phase when they have still so many hopes and dreams of, mm-hmm. you know, being, um, you know, getting married or being yeah. a parent or having a, you know, having a job or traveling somewhere or whatever it is that they imagined doing in their life and then to have that sort of flash before their eyes. And um, I think that um, for sure you you see the after effects of that. And I think that the, that they are sort of those populations do sort of share that that similarity. Yeah. Yeah. And I think even um, I know Brian has it down here in the notes because I think you, you must have shared this when we were visiting you two about like 20 percent of the patients will be back. I think, or I don't know if that's the correct percentage. Yeah, it depends. Um, There's certain risk factors. So in the highest risk people, it would be that many. And, you know, so somewhere between five and 20% of of the patients we're taking care of have have been a trauma patient in the past. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's just, I'm like, I I try to like visualize sometimes with myself or just us who maybe aren't living in a certain context or certain world and just thinking through, um, I'm trying to think of like, even if I was in a car accident that required me having to go, like, I don't think, like you think about that one moment of like, if this ever happened, you hope you get over it. And the fact that like a young kid who's grown up, I guess specifically in your context too, where the East side, like, we'll just look at that, focus on that one part. But like, there is this reality that, that one moment of like, oh, I might get shot and I might have to, or I might get stabbed and I might end up in the, but that's a continual thought. It's not a like one time only, like the way I'm thinking about like, oh, if I get in a car accident this one time and I might have to go to the hospital, boom. It's like, it's like combat, right? I mean, it's like, okay, you're kind of in a, you have no clue what's going to happen, but it's not out of the realm of possibility. Yeah. And and a gun pulled on you or whatever. But, and it's that same thing. Like, you're thinking it's going to happen multiple times, which is the recurring, like, it's just that constant, like, this is going to be my reality multiple times over. I'm going to have to maybe go to the hospital again. I'm going to have to go to the hospital again. So, so something that, I, you know, I, I have so many thoughts. <laughs> um, one, I want to, I want to make sure before I forget, like when we were connecting again, we referenced, you know, meeting up with you at the hospital. Um, you talked about this idea of like recidivism at, I did it, right? Yeah, did you did it. It, right? it was awesome. Awesome. I um, <laughs> with that, like, it's a huge focus right now in your field. Is that? Yeah, what? very much so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. What's what are some of the conversations around that? Or like, what what are the problems that are trying to solve? Like, what? Yeah. What are some solutions yeah. potentially? Yeah. So um, we talk about um, sort of community outreach and violence prevention, um, things like that. So we talk about how we as trauma surgeons need to be advocates for preventing these um, traumatic events. And Mm. uh, it's just like in any other thing, um, you know, you want to prevent heart attacks, not treat them. You want to prevent cancer, not treat it. And um, trauma is the same way, you know, in the same way that we made seatbelt laws and and potentially helmet laws and things that try to protect people from uh, losing their life in in those kinds of vehicle accidents. In the same way, we should be intervening um, for people who are in these uncontrollable circumstances that cause mm-hmm. them to be victims of, of violent uh, um 
attacks. And mm. so um, I think one of those populations are, are people who are affiliated with gangs and, mm. and they're in this circumstance where, as you were describing, um, it's part of their daily life that they might get shot. Mm. And and that's just um, that's just true of their circumstances. And there are a lot of barriers to um, you know people getting out of um, these kinds of life circumstances. And um, I think that obviously um, financial is a big one. Um, you know, family members um, that are also affiliated. Um, you know, uh, the need for employment, the need for housing, things like that. Um, and um, I think another big one is stigma. Um, and uh, sort of discrimination against them because of that past life or that past affiliation. And so um, one of my partners um, has uh, essentially um, a a service or um, a campaign that he's heavily involved in um, removing uh, tattoos um, from people who are previously um, either affiliated with gangs or mm-hmm. other situations where um, they have markings that that could stigmatize them mm-hmm. and inhibit mm-hmm. their ability to get certain employment or um, to enter into a, a different lifestyle um, mm-hmm. when they want to make change. And so mm-hmm. that that's an example, I think, of um, sort of a um, community outreach or um, uh, campaign that uh, that we can be involved in. Mm. Um, so yeah. yeah, that's cool to hear. Like I, I think when you just think about those who work in the hospital, you're not thinking about all that other stuff behind the scenes that you guys are advocating for, trying to um, help I, with. Yeah, I think it's really powerful to hear that from your perspective and even your the broader you know, community um, of your field because it's something we talk about all the time with within prodigal sons like we're trying to work to help churches be engaged for the long haul with their neighbors and their communities to to provide a, a, essentially like a a family that's walking with you that's an alternative family that can walk with people and and help come alongside them be that family be, provide you know opportunities to maybe to work or to you know whatever whatever it might be and just like tailored things to individuals. And, um, you know, we've, I've, as we've talked with various, um, you know, other people in ministry in this context, like, you know, it's, it's a recurring um, theme that comes up that, you know, essentially walking alongside, like people in gang lifestyle need kind of this support system, this mm-hmm. long lasting, consistent, faithful support system. And, um, yeah, you know. So I mean, well, I think that they need an alternative, right? You, you can tell people to stop doing something all you want, but um, yeah. I think you you need to start doing something else. And yeah. I think that uh, we have to look at look at alternatives to offer them. Yeah, yeah, and it's like we've talked about this a lot on this podcast, just in our ministry too, probably in our equipping groups that we've done that you're part of too, Megan. Like when you're when you live life, any of us you have certain habits, you have certain ways of living that are just, it's just common to us. This is how we live just because this is the influences that have been around us. This is everything about our life has been shaped in some way um, by something, someone. And so it's common to us. And so we stick with what's common in many ways. And yeah, we grow and we, we change in other aspects of our lives, but like that, like their context is just a different way that, like you're saying, like the alternative. It's not just like you said, like stop gangbanging, stop shooting each other. It's like 
there is a context of like life that is so foreign to a lot of outsiders that says like, don't do that. Like, what, like you know, but that's not the helpful way. Like it's the reality of like, no, you're, you're embedded in something that's just so ingrained and in, it's a part of your life that to like stop it just because someone says, don't do that. It's, that's like someone coming up to us and saying, um, you know, stop going to school or don't play sports anymore or don't pursue this career. Like just mm. stop that, you know, but, it's like, well, why? Yeah, like, well, why? To, to do what? And yeah, so, exactly. To yeah. do what? The alternative, you know. So, um, I, I, I don't know if I have a question tied in with this, Megan, but I want to, before Brian maybe gets into the last question, but I just kind of wanted maybe to encourage you. Maybe we can spitball off of this, but like, it's just so encouraging for us to hear someone, uh, a faithful sister in the Lord who has this unique opportunity and this unique job um, on the front lines with a lot of the individuals that we want to see changed by the gospel. Um, And I know like, I mean, it's probably different for you day to day, week to week on what's going on with your job. But like, I know God has put you there and there's this, little small unique opportunity that you're probably able to have like are you able to be the chaplain to them no <laughs> but <laughs> you might be praying for one of these young kids mm-hmm. and nobody else in their circle is praying for them mm-hmm. like you can you can intercede on behalf of them to the lord in their circumstance because you're having to, you're having to deal with what they're going through or you can offer that little bit of encouragement or hope um in a private moment with one of them when you're and it, I just, I guess I just want to encourage, like, I'm sure you go through a lot and having to process everything you're seeing constantly. It's not just, you know, gang shootings, you're dealing with car accidents and all this, you know, a lot of crazy stuff. But just, I think, yeah, just as you've been sharing and just realizing, like, God has you there as potentially just like this little sliver of hope, potentially for somebody who might not be getting it otherwise in their circles and in their context and stuff. So it's just more of an encouragement and just like grateful that God is using you in this context and stuff. So, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. 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 No, that's so. it's important. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so yeah. I, I think too, like one, one of the opportunities we've seen even over the, but especially during COVID I'll, I'll share, like there were situations with, with, you know, gang affiliated families that we're connected to, um, you know, a couple of situations where there was violence, um, enacted on, you know, maybe more gang involved. And then we had opportunity to minister to the family. Um, and, and I mean, I imagine <laughs> that, you know, that that's something that you have as well. It's not just the patient. There's this kind of confidence yeah. that you can give and hope that you can give. Um, and, yeah. and I think, you know, just one little, connection point there too like sometimes and not every time but sometimes you know one of the things we encourage churches to do is 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 to go to a vigil after something happens in their neighborhood right after someone gets shot it's like and there's wisdom but these can be opportunities that sounds like you have all the time to you know, possibly where God kind of opens a door for a, a connection where somebody's guard is down or somebody's willing to receive a hug or, or, mm-hmm. or just say, Hey, I'm praying for you. Yeah. Um, and so I think like often, 
you know, it, maybe even people listening right now can, can say, oh, well, you know, I don't have this opportunity, right? I don't have this opportunity to interact with people involved with gang, you know, life every day like Megan does. But, but I think it's just a matter of like, you know, praying for those opportunities um, and, and looking, thinking about, okay, this isn't just about those who are super actively involved. It's, it's like, who is affected by this and how do they need the gospel and how can we be a part of loving them? Yeah. Yeah. And prayer and prayer, like, again, I think we, we can all obviously probably grow in our prayer lives for sure. But like prayer is just such a constant that people can be doing like, you know, what in, in any, any, whether you're in a community or whether you're praying for your city, just again, interceding on behalf of individuals caught up in this lifestyle because Oftentimes, again, they don't always have it. And so, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I think, um, and I, I know I've shared with you before that there are circumstances where I've had um, patients ask me directly, could, could you pray for me? Or, or as you've said, also uh, a family member, uh, mm. you know, I'm thinking of a particular case where a mother um, said to me, you know, you know, I'm, I'm, I am just praying that he gets through this long enough for him to repent. Mm. Um, and um, I remember, and I thought, you know, wow. I'm just going to, I'm going to pray with her on this. And, yeah. and uh, you know, if, if God would give this, this man the opportunity to, to repent and uh, yeah. come to the Lord. So. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Mm. Awesome that you're able to pray with her. I mean, obviously the circumstance is crazy, but yeah, that's just, man. that's cool. Right, Brian. So Megan, I mean, you, <laughs> you could be doing this anywhere, right? I mean, and, and you probably wouldn't say this about yourself, but from my, from my, you know, understanding, you literally could do, you could pray, basically get hired anywhere to do this. <laughs> um, so why, why not like go work in like a super, you know, ritzy context, like with like the, you know, like why work with this population? Why work in Los Angeles um, doing what you do? Yeah. Um, no, I think honestly, um, the general hospital to me is just iconic. I mean, it was erected because the people of Los Angeles felt that, um, you know, medical care is something that, that all people of the community had a right, uh, to receive. And I think that, you know, as I said before, our patients that we treat, they experience a lot of discrimination. They experience discrimination about their ethnicity, about their language barrier, about their socioeconomic status or their affiliation with a gang or whatever it may be. But um, one thing I can say with absolute certainty is that um, they're not discriminated against um, for emergency surgical care. Mm. Um, they all get the best. They all get the the full shot at a second chance when they come in. And uh, mm. I think that um, that's something I can feel really good about is mm. that, uh, um, you know, we gave that to everyone, no matter who you are, and that we're all sort of, you know, humans in this one world under this one God. And uh, um, mm. yeah, that's mm, meaningful yeah. to me. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, Okay, what's something we should have asked you? <laughs> this, is, this is the main question I have. Oh, man, I don't know. Um, you didn't put that on the list. <laughs> it's not on the list. <laughs> um, or is there just like maybe um, anything specifically that you think you'd um, like to share more? 
Yeah, you know, I think that one thing that um, I struggle with and I would love to see mm. is how to um, connect um, this opportunity um, that I have at my job to um, to minister to these individuals with um, my church community and, mm. and my faith and um, how, you know, um, how can I... Um, I guess use um, this opportunity not only to to serve their physical needs, but um, to help them uh, realize that um, what what we all really need is Christ, and mm. um, you know, like um, how to I guess bridge those two worlds. And um, I think it's a hard thing to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know we've we've brainstormed a number of ways that that we can partner and work together on that. But yeah. um, I think that that's that's the ongoing struggle is um, how can I um, not just help them walk out of the hospital, but walk out of the hospital knowing that uh, um, there's a better way and um, there's a life with Christ. And mm-hmm. yeah, yeah I, I'm even again. There, there is so much to like. I think just sit and ask you about, talk with you about, and I'm even thinking like, you know, Lord willing, as you as you're kind of sharing, like, how does this bridge kind of even with your church context? You're in Cornerstone South Bay. That's where you know where you're at. Um, and just thinking through, like, I think even right now, as you're you're doing this job and you're seeing what you're seeing, you're experiencing what you're experiencing, how God can even is not can is um sort of like molding you for even the potential down the road if your church i think you're saying the connection if your church is down there and you guys get connected to people down there that are going through the trauma whether it's a family whether it's an actual person caught up in the streets whatever it is i think the care and the mindset and you being able to identify because you've seen the trauma in your context Lord willing can be helpful down there when you meet somebody that's maybe it's not even in this high traumatic situation of like violence and shootings or whatever it is, but you guys just somehow connect. And as they maybe, you know, again, this is just like thinking of a possible situation, but as they unpack their lives and they share with whoever, like God being able to even use you and what you've learned and experienced in your situation, how to minister to somebody else in trauma in this other unique way. Um, and just, yeah, just thinking about how God is constantly working at us to like prepare us for something maybe down the road in a similar, but also a different context too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it's, 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 in, it's again, I just keep saying it's encouraging to like see the unique position God's put you in because there's just so many ways you're probably able to like look at some of these things and know what to say or what to do in certain we're not perfect at it but you probably just you've been through so much that you probably have some sort of experience again just on like what's what's needed here what is it a prayer do i need to just offer encouragement do i need to do something whatever it is and i think as you guys down the road start bridging making that bridge connection um in your church context i think god will definitely use a lot of experiences you even had over here in Boyle heights um and who knows one day if there's even a connection like specifically with your job with the church too. So. I, I I really love the point you bring up there, just that desire because I I think if if more of us as followers of Christ were we're like praying towards that end, <laughs> like God, you've given me a skill, or you've given me a job, or you've given me like how can I how can this be useful? For reaching people like how can this be useful for connecting to my church like that 
that's, it's almost like that's the heart. It's a heart posture. And like, we, we want to, you know, ask God to open those doors, provide those opportunities, make it clear. And I think so much like, and it's, we should be active in, in seeking out opportunity and trying to put things together. Right. But so much of it's like, it starts there with what you brought up. And so I'm, I'm really encouraged by that and challenged by that. Um, I think it's, it's, it's like, okay, it's a reflection of like prayerfully, God, what have you given me and how can I use it for, you know, loving, loving my neighbors and loving my gang neighbors. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. uh, Megan, thanks for being here. Um, yeah. it's a huge blessing to sit with you and hear, um, you know, really where, what God has given you to do. Um, and there's other things <laughs> that we didn't get into, right? Yeah. Like family and, yeah, yeah. um, church <laughs> and all sorts of things. But, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a huge blessing. And, um, the, 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 the ending thing that I was going to say, what, uh, you know, you've written a lot of things. <laughs> I, I saw one paper in particular. Uh, no. I, I didn't read it cause I don't understand it, but <laughs> something about stab wounds. Okay. You, it's okay. like on your, uh, your bio page oh, or something. <laughs> anyway, but, uh, people can, people can find you, you know, see your, see your bio picture there at USC. But, uh, Yeah. Where else? Cornerstone South Bay? <laughs> yeah, Cornerstone South Bay. Sure. <laughs> okay, just trying to promote. You know? yeah. 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 yeah, no, yeah. thank you for uh, yeah. for having me and and yeah. for the ministry you do because yeah. uh, I think that it's a it's a blessing to this community and uh, I think uh, it it's good to um, have a conversation about this and um, especially with uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. So. Yeah. yeah, awesome, cool. Thanks again. Well, guys, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the Hope for the Hood podcast. Peace. This has been an episode of the Hope for the Hood podcast by Prodigal Sons Incorporated. Thank you for listening. A special thanks to Cornerstone West Los Angeles, where we host this podcast, Adam Bond for editing, and of course, those who regularly give to support the ministry of Prodigal Sons. Thanks for liking and subscribing. We'll catch you next time right here on the Hope for the Hood podcast.